0: even though like now I understand that I'm masking a lot of the time, the unmasking part is the difficult part for me because I've been doing it for so long. There are moments when I like find like, oh, like, why am I doing this? Oh, I, and then I'm like, oh, I'm masking. I'm trying to make myself quote more palatable in the social situation.
1: Hey, Dustin.
2: Hey, Crystal. Hey, Me Searchers. You are listening to the Me Search Podcast, where we have critical, messy, and fun conversations with each other, with friends, and with leaders in the community.
1: On this show, we also unpack important issues, learn, and unlearn what we think we know about what it means to be Filipino.
2: Yay! Yay! Yay. <laughs> wow, <laughs>
1: that was very unenthused. Yay! But- Yay! We're truly enthused. We're truly, truly enthused.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So today we're going to dive into the topic of neurodiversity. Crystal, what is neurodiversity, according to experts?
1: Here's what Dr. Nicole Balmer and Dr. Julia Freud say in Harvard Health Publishing. Neurodiversity describes the idea that people experience and interact with the world around them in many different ways. There is no one right way of thinking, learning, and behaving, and differences are not viewed as deficits. The word neurodiversity refers to the diversity of all people, but it is often used in the context of autism spectrum disorder, ASD, as well as other neurological or developmental conditions such as ADHD
2: or learning disabilities. Yep, yep, yep. Okay. Thank you to the experts.
1: (laughs) Yes. Thank you to the
2: experts. (laughs) And then today we've got a special guest, a special friend of the pod Warjay Nigen, who is gracious enough to share their own personal journey with autism and ADHD. Welcome, Warjay. <laughs> woo!
0: Woo! Let's go! Let's go!
2: Yeah.
0: Hello. <laughs> Thank hello. you to both of you, Dustin and Crystal, for having me on here. Um, so hello, everyone. Uh, my name is uh, Warjay Nigan. My pronouns are they, them. And yeah, just thanks for having me here on the pod, dude.
2: Thank you for being here. Welcome. Warjay is a long standing friend of the podcast.
0: Correct. Aww. This is correct.
2: We appreciate you. I have known Warjay since... God. Mm. Maybe 2018?
0: 2018? I think so.
2: That sounds about right. <laughs>
0: Something like oh. that. Yeah.
2: yeah. Uh, you're really a swell person. I appreciate you uh, making time to be here um, yes. to share your story yeah
1: thank you thank you for being here it's so lovely to meet you um so let's dive in sure um so you were diagnosed with autism adhd and also ptsd at the age of 26. talk to us about this experience
0: sure um so you are correct that i was diagnosed with those three things at the age of 26 um Leading up to that journey, I always had this like innate feeling that there were aspects of my experience that just didn't match as to how I felt like I truly was, or like the, the way that I was being perceived by others didn't totally match the experiences that I felt that I was experiencing and interacting with the world. As a kid, I didn't really like think much of it. I was just like, oh, like I'm just, you know, a little different. Um, sometime in college was kind of like when I started kind of doing the Initial thought in my head that was like, "Is it possible that I have uh, autism, or that I have ADHD, um, or PTSD?" Because definitely, I had my own struggles with like things like uh, social, like social anxiety, depression throughout a lot of my life and like other other things that culminate into me wanting to inquire more a little bit about that. Um, but at the time when I was looking into it, when I was still in college, uh, when I first looked at it around like twenty one ish. Um, when I went to the therapist that I had at a time at the time and I was doing pre-screening, they, all they could really say when they did the pre-screening for me was that it's possible, but they're not totally sure. Um, and that kind of stopped my conversation for a while and I didn't really think much about it, um, until probably around like 2020. So like maybe like four years later when I started having that conversation with myself again, and I started learning more through, um, the experiences of folks that are autistic and have ADHD and, and have PTSD and like seeing and hearing their stories and being like, holy shit, wait. So most people don't experience these kinds of things, kind of, kind of thing. And then, so like Mm -hmm. over months and months of like me, like carefully, like trying to understand and listen to like these communities experiences and like what, how their autism, ADHD and PTSD uh, show up for them. Um, and finding a lot of like similarities with my own experiences I was like okay like I want to kind of move forward with um an official diagnosis and before that I I did kind of like self-diagnose myself as someone that had just autism at the time I was like I, th- I can see myself as autistic um, but when I did take the tests and everything or took um like tests and I met with um a neurobehavioral psych uh, psychiatrist to kind of like talk to me more about my experiences they they did all like their work, and then, yeah, er- earlier this year they called me and they were like, yeah, so we gave you an official like diagnosis of autism as well as um, as well as ADHD and PTSD, which I wasn't expecting the other two, and I was like, oh, okay, um, yeah. So you had
2: kind of like self-diagnosed yourself at some point, yes, without like actual confirmation. So I'm curious, like, what was your understanding of? say autism before you got to college because all of this seems to have unfolded while Mm -hmm. you were going to school in college
0: yes yes um so with autism before I kind of came into college my understanding of autism was very little to nothing to be quite honest I had one friend that I that was autistic and then another friend that had Asperger's At the time which is what they used to call it but that asperger's is no longer a term that's like kosher to use but um their their experiences and all i could just really describe for lack of a better term is that they were just like back then as a kid i definitely was like oh they're just weird you know and like and beyond that i just couldn't really say that's really all my understanding about like what autism was it was it was weird it was different and that in some cases it can be quote Severe in like this aspect of it can be really, um, in from what I saw as a child, something that was that can be kind of like debilitating in a sense, in terms of like requiring like accessibility needs. Um, and it took until like me going to college and also like me pretty much up until like a couple of years ago to realize like how problematic that kind of like understanding of autism was back then. Because like it, even when I was in college, I still kind of had that same kind of like running idea of what autism was. Before I really did my research on autism, my understanding of what the how you can quote diagnose autism is from a a light to severe scale because people tend to talk about autism as like an autism spectrum, and the misconception of that autism spectrum is that it's like from a gradient from zero to one hundred percent. You're either like live not that autistic or you're very very autistic, you know. Um, and through my research about like autism and like self-diagnosing, I learned that like that just, that is not the case. That's not how. The autism spectrum works it lo- it works more kind of like a spectrum of uh like a i don't know what's a great analogy for it but i'll say kind of like a um like a pie chart i guess where like mm-hmm. basically there are different factors that play into being diagnosed with autism and you need to have at least four to five or you need to have at least four to five out of like the six items to be considered autistic otherwise you'll be considered for like just one or just one and two of the other particular um, neuro, neuro, neuro-behavioral neuro differences, right? Um, and for each autistic person, honestly, their autism will look pretty unique and different. So it's hard to really say what autism really looks like because it's it has such a wide breadth of uniqueness because it encaptures so many different things. It took a lot for me to break down my understanding of autism and like understand some of the other uh, aspects that come into understanding what exactly it looks like. Oh, um, some things that that can conclude are things like social awareness, social cues, things like a monotropic mindset, which is kind of like horse blinders, like being really hyper focused, ob- almost obsessive on certain tasks, um, things like inf- other things like information processing, um, sensory processing, repetitive behaviors, or like, motor differences, um, all of these things can be things that are encompassed within like the diagnosis of being autistic. and if you have one or two of these things, you won't be con- you wouldn't be considered quote autistic. you'd be considered like you know, someone who has social anxiety or someone who has sensory issues. Uh, but if you show that you have like multiple at varying scales like you would be labeled as autistic. and again you may have more on like, more intensity and things like sensory processing, but a little less on social awareness or like more on like monotropic mindsets or a little less on like motor neurological like differences.
2: I found it interesting that you dove into this a little bit more in your college years, particularly because I didn't really understand what autism was until, like, for me later in life. Yeah. Like, I'm still learning what that, what that entails. As yeah. far as, like, representation on television, honestly, yeah. the only, like, thing that I've ever seen, or, like, the first thing, perhaps, that I've seen of, like, autism is, mm-hmm. like, frankly, um, there was a contestant on America's Next Top Model. I want to say it was, like, season like six or something yeah maybe like season seven i don't remember but like there was a contestant with um with autism and that was something that they had featured and at that point i i had no idea what that was and i didn't that must have been like early 2000s maybe yeah or mid-2000s do you know what i'm talking about
0: RJ? um vaguely i i don't not for me not america's top model but i do remember someone that sang on the voice in the uk that was autistic it was like a middle-aged woman. That was my first how, remembrance. How of...
2: many years ago was that?
0: Mm, some somewhere between 2008 and 2012. Okay, so a
2: long time ago. Yes. I, I don't know if I don't know if the case is still that there's not much representation in the media. I mm-hmm. certainly in school didn't learn a, a thing about it.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Um, so as you were diagnosed. Yes. Having developed like your understanding of what it means to have uh, a diagnosis with um, autism or ADHD, like how did you receive that diagnosis? Was it something that was like, oh, now I have a name to place on things that I thought were true? Or was it like mm-hmm. overwhelming for you? How did you feel? How did you receive that?
0: Um, Initially, it was definitely like a confirmation of like, you know, all these things that I had earlier, like self-diagnosed for myself and was like, you know, like these differences in how I'd seen the world and kind of like navigated it have, I feel like are a little bit more confirmed by this diagnosis for the autism, ADHD and PTSD. But at the same time, I think there was also a certain level of grieving that came with it too. So a thing that is very common with folks that have autism and or ADHD is something uh, known as masking. Uh, neurodivergent folks will mask for a large set of reasons for things like feeling unsafe, of expressing like their true self amongst other people, trying to avoid stigma, like stigmas are against like being autistic and having ADHD, like avoiding bullying, um, trying to um, quote fit in in like social situations and stuff like that. And for a lot of neurodivergent folk, masking is a daily is a daily process because every day like, these innate things that you experience and the way you interact with your world, you have to actively work to suppress, hide, and change for other people so that way you're, quote, a little bit more palatable to, like, the average, quote, average person because a lot of people's mindsets when it comes to someone who has ADHD or someone who has autism is they either will, like, infantilize them so they'll kind of, like, remove their autonomy and, like, be like oh they can't they can't decide what's right for themselves like like they're autistic but um yeah there was like a certain amount of grieving I guess that came from it because there. I it came to me to acknowledge that like for large parts of my life I had to pretend and hide lots of aspects that I felt were core to how I got to enjoy the world around me mm. um and Over the years of masking, I slowly took away those pieces that brought me joy, and I started losing places of safety where I could, you know, quote, unmask and be my true self. Um, When I was younger, the only safe place I really had to be myself and unmask was, like, in my room and, like, have my own space. But then, like, with, like, situations that kind of happened in college, I lost that, I lost that space of just having my own sense of comfort it definitely kind of like makes it really difficult and like i i mentioned earlier too that like i didn't get diagnosed the first time i tried to get screened for autism because they said they weren't sure and there's a saying that um masking for neurodiverse folks can be so bad or like so intense that they don't even know that they're autistic or AD or they have ADHD because they have to mask so intensely and like I feel like because I didn't really do as much research as I wanted to back then I was still hiding large parts of myself in my initial screening when I was 21 but by the time I did another screening when I was 26 I was better able to kind of like pick apart parts of my masked experience and they were able to kind of place that and um the grieving also kind of came too because part of the PTSD diagnosis mentions that because of the heavy amount of masking I've had to do for pretty much the entirety of my life is very mentally taxing mm. and makes it difficult sometimes for me to even understand, like, who am I? These people that have known me for as long as they have, Like, do they truly know who I am? Do I even know who I am? And will they still love me if I came to accept who I was? That's still kind of an ongoing thing. It ebbs and flows. Um, But I think it's definitely helped in the aspect of me trying to find and follow my truth as Mm -hmm. an autistic ADHD person. Yeah.
1: That's very empowering and, and... Thank you so much for your vulnerability and for sharing, um, all that you've shared. I know that I'm, I, I'm sure that folks listening, um, who might maybe feel like they need to go to a screening, feel mm-hmm. like they're getting some comfort right now. Um, yeah. hearing your, your, your truth and your experience and your story, um, May I ask, um, if, if someone is out there who might want to get screened, what is the screening process like?
0: Yeah. Um, I can't say I know what all of them are going to look like, but in terms of the one that I went to, um, I definitely first looked for a place to kind of just fit my insurance. And I sent an email, gave a call saying like, hey, like um, I want to look into getting screened uh, for autism. Is, this, is that like something that I could do here? And then from there, they kind of like did, took an intake with me to kind of get a feel of like, oh, like what things led to me, like being interested in this kind of thing. Um, and the place that I went to, they were gonna do a, um, a broad like range of tests to, like besides autism, they checked for ADHD, OCD, PTSD, uh, bipolar disorder, uh, and other things like that, kind of just like confirm if, they, if I had like something else or if like I had a multiple, multitude of things. Um, and from there, they gave me a series of tests. A portion of it was um, self t- like self-test. So I would like fill them out. They gave me like like 80 pages worth of like questionnaires for me to fill out about like my experiences like currently as a child, how I interact with friends, family, how I process certain information stuff like that and then similarly they had me go into like their office to take um tests there with them um mm-hmm. and it had been a while so I can't totally remember what um they used back then but that was kind of like what they used in terms of the screening that that process took about like a month and a half i'd say of Ooh. tests um and then from there they spent like another like month and a half to kind of like gather their Information put together their reports and then, at the after that they yeah they give me a call give me my the report and then they're like here's here's what we found you know. I also will acknowledge too that um, obtaining a, an official diagnosis is difficult for many folk. Um, I acknowledge that um, in terms of like quote official diagnosis it can be inaccessible, like money, financial wise and insurance wise for many folks to do so. Some may not feel safe to do so. And at the same time, the diagnosis also isn't perfect. I know amongst some other autistic and like neurodiverse folk, there are these tests that are in place, but they tend to, they tend to mm. miss other folk, like other people, especially because a lot of these um, tests are really based off of like children, um, specifically like white boy children so like the quote the farther you kind of leave that intersectional space the more likely it tends to be that you may get misdiagnosed with something else like bipolar disorder or like something else you know um so yeah god and like a and on a similar note i also am am a big supporter of the aspect of self-diagnosis um there's actually there's actually Mm -hmm. research and reports done by the University of Washington's Autism Center, where um, I believe they report something along the lines of self-diagnoses for autism. It, they're 90% of the time, they're correct on their self-diagnoses. They they note in particular that people who self-diagnose don't do it just because like, oh, like they see like one or two experiences that they, you know, connect with within the autistic experience. These people who self-diagnosed more often than not will do extensive research to, eventually come to that point and be like, you know what, after seeing all of this information, I think I'm autistic, or I think I have ADHD, or I think I have both because one, it's not really like, quote, a societally is not viewed as like a great thing to find out that you're autistic or you have ADHD. Um, so like, quote, the incentive for um, self-diagnosis isn't like, it's not like a cool, quote, popular thing to do, despite what people like, some people like to say. It is. So like um, self-diagnosis is valid, I'd say. And at the end of the day, if your self-diagnosis helps you better navigate your life and help you feel more fulfilled and understand how you want to navigate the world, then more power to you, of course.
1: So how do you now navigate the world in your relationships?
0: Definitely. It's just like a thing that I kind of have to take on day by day. Um, Even though like now I understand that I'm masking a lot of the time, the unmasking part is the difficult part for me because I've been doing it for so long. There are moments when I like find like, Oh, like, why am I doing this? Oh, and then I'm like, Oh, I'm masking. I'm trying to make myself quote more palatable in the social situation. I may like, Work to quote unmask that, Um, but it's more than just like working to be able to unmask it and do that. There's also like aspects of the PTSD for me where it's like, why did I mask to begin with? It's because you know like I was bullied, people used to make fun of me. I was denied support because of how I used to act back then as a child, and who when I or like at whatever point in my life, and I and I eventually learned to mask those behaviors and pretend to be something else instead. Which put a lot of emotion, like mental tax on myself. Um, and it got to a point where I was just denying myself basic care and basic needs for myself to feel well. I would dissociate and just not remember large parts, large chunks of like my childhood and collegi- collegiate experience because I was masking so heavily and I had, I had no choice because this is the only way I could do to survive. And even though I am no longer in those situations, those those fears and those behaviors are still things that kind of like stick with me and make it difficult for me to um fully unmask in in the aspect of like being able to share my truth with other people I think it's I'm a lot better at unmasking when I'm here alone in my room because I've been able to transform my room into a place where I feel safe with myself again and being Mm -hmm. feeling safe with myself in my own body I think that's a great part in terms of like my my journey in the past years that I feel like I've been a lot more comfortable in unmasking and loving the strange and weird parts of myself and letting myself feel that kind of joy but I think being able to show that and share that kind of joy with other people that care about me is still a difficult thing because of the years of like bullying and trauma that I had experienced throughout a lot of my life and also just like, like tacit ableist ideas that are just commonplace in large parts of society. Um, I think when it comes to me navigating it with the world, I think I feel a lot more comfortable in being like, yeah, I'm autistic. These are my needs. These are my, like, these are the kind of accommodations that I need. Um, I don't see one thing that's that benefits me in terms of having my official diagnosis is that it helps me better advocate for my own accommodations in places like the workplace. That's been like a benefit for myself and feeling a little bit more unapologetic in that sense. But when it comes to like more um, intimate relationships with people like family, friends, life partners, I think that's where I find a little bit more difficulty with that still. And it's a process. I think the thing that makes it difficult for me sometimes is like, I'm still recovering from years and years of masking and like acknowledging like, damn, like I'm actually really tired of masking and like, it's it's difficult, um, but also at the same time, like a lot of the people that I care for, like um, may not really know much about autism or ADHD or PTSD and how that shows up for me. It can be a lot for me to unmask. and I think I guess I sometimes I need to be mentally prepared for things like questions, inquiries, and you know, potential like pushback towards like my unmasked behavior because, like, like Desstin had mentioned, in terms of representation for like something like autism is very minimal to none. So like things that I that may be part of like my autistic behavior can be perceived as like, laziness selfishness lacking empathy or like strange or like socially unacceptable behaviors um and it's hard to sometimes i don't have the energy to explain and talk about those things and i have to make choices with myself to sometimes just continue to mask with friends because i don't have the energy to fully explain it but i will tell them that these are things that i'm doing and that when i have the energy for it I'll unmask more, and then I'll be able to come from a place of understanding, and feel more comfortable and trust other folks to be accepting of like what my autism looks like.
2: So Warjay, what does how does all of that play out in Filipino settings? So you talked about like yes. the, the stigma, and then the masking, and the folks not understanding. Sure. Like, uh-huh. not to say that there is a that they're comparable and exact in the level of energy you expend to mask versus like um, how just a Filipino in general may change the way that they move about the world to be more palatable to white people yeah, or like the, the the majority, I guess, let's say. So like, I just, I, that's what it makes me think of um, is that, you know, just people of color in general, like minority folk, they move about, the world engaging with dominant culture and then they have to make themselves more palatable to those who are in power and whatnot yes so like that's what it reminds me of but i'm imagining you as a filipino person you're already doing that to kind of like be palatable to dominant culture in like the sense of controlling your filipinoness and, like yes. that that mm-hmm. the filipino narrative and how how you adopt yeah. that in the world, and <laughs> like how much you show of yourself uh, yeah. of how Filipino you can be. Mm-hmm. And then like on top of that, you're also handling this masking of being a person with autism. Yes. So like how does autism and being Filipino or in being in Filipino spaces, like how does all of that work together from your perspective?
0: It's definitely Um It's definitely as complex as, like, you you had kind of mentioned it, like, mm-hmm. kind of trying to, te- like, in terms of, like, being Filipino and, like, navigating, like, a white hegemonic, like, society and, like, trying to, like, more or less being forced to balance a line between, like, my Filipinoness and, like, being, quote, palatable to the majority society and, like, that fitting into, like, a matrix of me also being autistic and having ADHD and, like, fitting that there. I think it's um, one thing that I've had to kind of, like, unlearn about like the narrative about like me being autistic and having ADHD is that like laziness, in terms of a neurotypical societal understanding, is different than what I'm experiencing. Because when, for example, when someone looks at an autistic, someone with ADHD, and they say like, "Oh, like, see, they 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 can't concentrate on their tasks, or they're not doing the tasks that they're supposed to," um, they're just lazy. And from what I've been learning from like the neurodivergent community is that the running idea when it comes to laziness in a neurotypical sense is that, um, laziness means I have the full capability to do this thing. I just choose not to, um, hmm. but for someone with ADHD, it's, I have this innate feeling that says I cannot do this thing, no matter how desperately I actually want to do this thing so like there is something that is preventing me from doing these particular tasks neurobehaviorally as someone with autism and adhd but i can't i can't bring myself to do it whether it's something like related to my executive dysfunction which basically means that like i have difficulty managing things like time and bouncing various tasks Or things like sensory processing, like for me as an autistic person, so like if I am overstimulated by things in the room, um, it may be difficult for me to do certain tasks because these things are just so, are basically eating up so much headspace in my brain that I can't even function to do certain tasks. But to a neurotypical person that just comes off as like, oh, they're just lazy, they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing, you know? Mm. And in response to it, definitely, like, finding ways to, how do I describe it, accommodate or mitigate those kinds of behaviors. Like, I'm going to use the example of, like, being overstimulated by things. So, like, one thing that tends to happen for me is I can get really overstimulated with light. I make this joke sometimes where I say, I can't hear what you're saying, the lights are too bright. (laughs) And, like, it's a half joke, but it's also kind of serious because, like, um, there's a lot of autistic folks that are actually very sensitive to fluorescent light and, like, other, like, sensitivities to things like that. Like, even just, like, sound sensitivities, that's why, like... Nowadays, I'll definitely like put on like noise cancelling headphones when I work or I try to do certain tasks because it helps me kind of like maintain my focus and prevent myself from overstimulating and let me do the tasks that I want to do instead of feeling very overwhelmed and not doing them at all. But societally, when they see like me walking around with my headphones on like 20, like pretty much the whole time, people are like, hello, I'm right here. Like, are you not listening to me? Like, they'll think like I'm like not paying attention or like, you know, like or like I'll wear sunglasses Um in like the office space because it helps dampen the the fluorescent lights and people will be like, why are you doing that? That's weird. Obviously there's nothing stopping me from doing it, but society, societally it can be perceived as weird. And then it can be perceived as something to not like chastise, but like something to be like question. And like, yeah. mm-hmm. it can be tiring because those kind of things are kind of like microaggressions. Mm. It can be a lot.
2: Yeah. I do not even think about that. Like the sunglasses thing. Yeah. Yeah, this is very eye-opening.
0: Yeah. Yes. Honestly, like my 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 journey of like uh knowing how to uh accommodate and mitigate like certain sensory things for myself has actually been really um uh healing for me because I think something that I've come to realize for myself is that younger me actually knew a lot of these things about myself before I was even diagnosed. I knew I liked I knew I worked better when I used to put on noise cancelling headphones. I knew I worked better when I put sunglasses on most of the time because it helped it helped make the lights be less loud or like knowing that there were certain things I could do for myself to make me be more productive and make me actually accomplish the tasks that I wanted to do. But when I came into college, it became difficult for me to do those things, because when I started hanging out with people and they'd see me do these things, they'd be like, oh, you're that's weird. Why are you doing that? You know, they like question me. And then because I didn't really have like a good reason, a good reason back then, because I didn't know I was autistic. I'd just be like, oh, I just do it because it helps. And then, you know, people would just be they'd make comments that it's that I shouldn't be doing those things and stuff. So I ended up stop doing it. So it's interesting. Like looking back and like realizing that like there there were like younger parts of me understood things that I'm only rediscovering now.
1: That's amazing. If someone noticed you wearing your sunglasses, right, in the office. Sure. And it's like, oh, this is this is different. How would you have how would you like and have liked to been asked?
0: For me, I think because of like my, because of my PTSD, I definitely have a, I have, quote, trust issues with sure. a lot of other people. Yeah. Um. So I definitely, whenever I am asked questions, I definitely have a hard time thinking people come from a place of understanding. So I think if people were to ask me, why am I wearing sunglasses? I think it would be great if people were to be like, hey, like, I'm coming from a place of understanding. There's, there's no judgment here. And I, I just want to know. Like what your thought process was in terms of like deciding that you wanted to wear sunglasses into the office. I want to know more on how that if that's like something that's preferential or if it helps benefit you in the workplace. And I think also adding to that also tacking in that if I don't want to talk about this right now, Mm -hmm. then I don't have to. Again, like sometimes, like I'll be like, yeah, like I'll tell you why I'm wearing sunglasses. Sometimes the lights are very loud and it makes it difficult for me. But sometimes, like if like I don't have capacity to talk about those things, I'll like. But they are able to reassure me that they are coming from a place of understanding and care. Yeah, I'll feel a lot better in terms of being like I appreciate that you are interested in wondering in like inquiring why. I can't really speak on it right now because I because of X Y Z reasons. But I would love to talk to you a little bit more about it like tomorrow, something like that. Or or I'm I'm glad to send you an email, you know, because like sometimes also like I don't have the capacity to verbally talk about it, but I can write it down and send you some resources. I can do that instead.
2: Or you can just leave WarJ alone. (laughs) Yeah,
0: you can also do that too. (laughs)
2: Because
0: whatever works for me, works for me.
1: Yeah. You know, thank you for sharing that though, because I feel like, some people might truly be coming from like a place of empathy and love and yeah. true curiosity, and because we're not really given <laughs> any kind of blueprint on how to truly speak from an empathetic place, yeah, I think this is so helpful. It sucks that we have to like maybe ask how to ask, right, yeah, because we should just be sensitive, kind people. <laughs> Yeah. Right. Yeah. But I feel like some people, and also society, doesn't teach us how to to be loving and kind in in yeah. a deeper, meaningful way. So thank you for sharing that. If this might possibly be like a starting point for someone's, like, oh, you know what? I think I should be <laughs> kinder in how I ask. Yeah. Yeah. Um, any kind of question when it comes to personal things like that. So thank you for sharing your perspective in that.
0: Yeah. yeah. And I do want to acknowledge that like to an outsider and to like to many of us who don't really have access to like or like really get that much visibility on like neurodiverse experiences, like it can be really different and it can be really hard to really find out how to have that conversation. And I think like at least with like the neurodiverse folks that you do know, being able to be like, hey, like. I wanted to know more about the neurodiverse experience. I don't like, you don't have to talk about it right now, but I just want to put it out there that it's something that I wanted to know more about because hearing about your experiences makes me wonder about my own, you know, Mm -hmm. because there are many out there. Yeah. Okay. So as we close out,
2: Warjay, what is one thing that you would like for folks to know or take away from what we've talked about?
0: I think one thing I want people to know and think about when it comes to the neurodiverse experience is that to ensure that you're all coming from a place of understanding and care and that you are you are genuinely listening to the experiences of of those in the neurodiverse community because they knew their needs the best and oh. they're just as much part of this world as everyone else.
2: Thank you so much, Warjay. Thank you. For sharing and for being here with us um, on this episode. Yeah. We are very blessed. Very blessed. Thank you for
1: teaching us so much.
2: Of course.
0: Tried my best. (laughs) You're you're great. Oh, man. No,
1: this was such an incredible, um, eye opening conversation. And again, I just, I really can't reiterate enough. Like, thank you for your vulnerability. Thank you for your generosity in sharing these golden nuggets of freaking kindness.
0: Yeah, and I appreciate y'all opening up that space for me to speak to. That's great. Great stuff. Anytime, Warj. Anytime.
1: All right. Well, thank you again so much um Warj, Me Searchers. Thank y'all for being here. Y'all, this was Warj Nigan. Woo! Let's
2: go. Woo-hoo! And everybody, don't forget be a Me Searcher. Follow us at Me Search Podcast. And check us out online at mesearchpodcast.com.
1: We're going to get to the bottom of things. This
2: is Me Search, folks. (laughs)